Welcome to LSHTM Viral Season 3, a podcast exploring the science behind global and public health. I'm Amy Thomas. I'm Carl Byrne. And I'm Naomi Stewart. And every fortnight, we'll explore the latest developments in the COVID-19 pandemic and take a deep dive into vaccines and vaccinations. To date, over 112 million people have been confirmed to have caught COVID-19, with 2.5 million deaths. Since the first COVID-19 vaccine was given to a member of the public on December 8, 2020, here in the UK in Coventry, over 208 million vaccine doses have been administered worldwide. Israel has given vaccines to over half of its population, followed by the UK, who has given one dose to more than a quarter of theirs. In terms of absolute numbers, the US has given out over 63 million. However, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned on February the 17th that just 10 countries have administered 75% of all COVID-19 vaccines. Meanwhile, more than 130 countries have not received a single dose. According to the vaccine tracker run by the Vaccine Centre here at LSHTM, there are 307 vaccine candidates being developed globally, 81 of which are in clinical testing and 11 in active use. Research continues on the efficacy of each, including for single doses and against new variants. A study published yesterday in the UK claims that one dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine reduces the risk of being infected by the virus by more than 70%, rising to 85% after the second dose. The data also suggests that even one dose can interrupt transmission and reduce hospitalizations. In today's episode, I speak with two members of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's Centre for the Mathematical Modelling of Infectious Diseases. This world-leading team of experts has been informing the global response to COVID-19 through insights on patterns of transmission, behavioural response and control measures, including vaccines. First, I speak with Dr Rosalind Ego. Ros has worked extensively on COVID-19 transmission and public health interventions in the UK and internationally. Hi Ros, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. So we had some fairly positive news yesterday with the UK roadmap announcement. What's your reaction to this? Yeah, I thought that there's some really positive things in here and I really appreciate the the caution that was in it. Despite the success of the vaccination campaign, we have to be cautious as we proceed towards unlocking and increasing our contact behaviours. And I thought that that focus on caution was good. The roadmap sets out the public health measures that we're looking at, or we might be looking at over the coming months. How important is the vaccination programme, you know, alongside this in unlocking us really from this lockdown situation in the UK? Yeah, so from the start of the epidemic, we've seen a a huge burden in older adults and in people with comorbidities. And the vaccination strategy has targeted those people for for vaccination first. I think once we see all of those at-risk groups vaccinated, and especially once they get their second doses, then we would really hope to be seeing a big impact on the burden of cases, the number of hospitalizations and the deaths that we see. And that'll make a big change in in how we handle the, the epidemic in the UK. So we're just beginning to see real world data from mass vaccination programs in the UK on what levels of protection the COVID-19 vaccines provide. 
Additionally, in the UK, we're seeing about 90% of the people in high-risk groups who've been offered a vaccine have come forward to have their first dose. Uh, given how effective the vaccines are and how many people at high risk we've vaccinated, are we on track or do we need to do more? We need to reach as many of those at-risk people as possible because the vaccine isn't perfect. So we really want to push for more than 90% and really try and get all the people who are at risk. But then you can use vaccines in in two in kind of in two ways you have direct protection where you vaccinate people who are at risk in order to protect them and then there's also indirect protection which is that if you vaccinate um, the general population then this pulls down the transmission in the in the whole group because it slows transmission in everybody so in order to protect as many people as possible um, we want to keep rolling out vaccination uh, as widely as possible to try and increase our population, our community immunity, and that'll push down transmission in everybody, even those who haven't received their vaccine. Obviously, the government has announced these measures. Um, people are feeling a bit hopeful um, and looking into the future about when they can see their friends and, and family potentially. How do you see this fitting into the general sort of global picture of COVID? Will will the other, other countries need to have a similar model? Um, how do you see this sort of fitting in globally? Yeah, it's a great question and a difficult one. You know, what we what would benefit everyone is a global equitable distribution of vaccine. And that's really what would make us all safe um, and allow us to return more quickly to the patterns of living that, that we want to. So I think that the key thing for me would be making sure that all, all countries have um, equitable access to vaccine. So the government has announced that schools will reopen on March the 8th. Uh, what impact do you think this is going to have on transmission and to COVID-19? We know that um, children can get infected and they do, but we also uh, have seen um, both in September when schools opened in England and previously when they opened in Scotland, that although the prevalence in school children did go up, it was relatively slow increases in prevalence in children. The early indication looks like younger children, so those of primary age, are less likely to get infected than children of secondary school age. And so I think that we have to, you know, very cautiously watch this, be guided by the data, and make sure that we balance both the benefits and the harms of school opening and closing. Obviously, you're experienced in, um, you know, monitoring data and applying that to public health. Um, how quickly can we make these decisions or reactive decisions based on what we're seeing sort of play out currently with the data? How might that roll out in the next few weeks, months? So COVID is a really challenging um, infection for real-time monitoring because the infection itself happens quite quickly, but the symptoms and the downstream effects are quite slow. So by the time you see an increase in hospitalizations, this is several weeks past an increase in transmission. So it makes it, it's just quite a challenging infection to re respond to quickly. And I think that that's, you know, something that we that we are trying to make sure our data are as up to date as possible. We're looking um, to increase our surveillance in, in all population groups, not just those with symptoms, to try and get a better handle on what's happening in the community before we start to see these really downstream indicators like hospitalizations and deaths. 
Next in the episode, we hear from Professor John Edmonds. John is a member of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE. His research focuses on finding the most effective control measures for COVID-19, including vaccines. John is also part of the Joint Committee on UK Vaccination and Immunisation. Just how important was the invention of vaccines for global health generally? I think they're probably amongst the most effective and cost-effective interventions that we do full stop. I mean, I think the only thing to rival in terms of public health and the effect of vaccines are probably sanitation. But apart from that, I think vaccines are probably one of the most effective and cost-effective things we do. What do you think is the sort of biggest issue we see for for this COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, The speed at which we can vaccinate people and the efficacy of the vaccines, that's undoubtedly the the main issue. There's a concern about the variants that are arising uh, and how effective the vaccines will be against those new variants. How are these strains arising and what are we concerned about? Okay, so viruses mutate all the time. They make mistakes when they're copying all the time and most of those are uh, have no effect, but um, some of them may offer them an advantage. And it's pretty clear that the variant uh, that, that was first identified in Kent and has spread across the UK and now across m- much of the world has a fairly strong uh, advantage in terms of transmissibility. It, it, it's significantly more transmissible than the variants that were around before. So that makes a big difference, of course. That means that it's uh, much more difficult to control, so you have to work a lot harder to control it. That's one thing. I guess there's three things one needs to ask when you get a new variant. So one, is it more transmissible? The Kent strain is. Um, Two, is it more pathogenic? So if you get it, is it more likely to cause severe illness or death? And again, with the UK strain, evidence has accumulated over the last month or so to suggest that that's also true that it is also more pathogenic than the uh, other variants and so more likely to cause death. And then the third question that you need to ask really is can it evade the immune response, so existing immunity, so someone's already been infected or have they been vaccinated against a previous strain, will that immunity still be effective against these new variants? And for the Kent one, the, the one that first arose in the UK and spread around that is true. So if people were previously infected or vaccinated, it looks like immunity is pretty strong against the UK new variant. Looking uh, at the other two major ones that have caused most concern, um, that's one of the variants that's come out of Brazil and was actually first identified in Japan. Um, so that's the sort of came from the Amazonas region or has been identified there in particular. Manaus, and then uh, the South African variant. Um, Whether they're more transmissible than existing variants, it's hard to say. Uh, They may not be, but it does look as if those variants are able to evade immunity to some extent. And it's pretty weak data at the moment, but most of the data has come from, from vaccination, but also some circumstantial epidemiological data. So it looks as if individuals who've been infected before maybe slightly more likely to be reinfected with those strains compared with the prior strains. And what does that mean for vaccines? Does that mean we might need to develop a new vaccine to combat the new strains? Um, Well, yes, possibly. 
and many of the companies are working on that at the moment. If you look, the Manaus and the South African strains have a similar set of mutations. One in particular that causes concern is a mutation at E484 in, in the spike protein. So at position 484, and it's a, a mutation at that point. It's sometimes called the EEK mutation, it's E484K. The Manaus and the South African variants both have that same mutation. The UK variant doesn't, although they have now picked up the UK variant that has acquired that additional mutation. So this is the cluster that's first sort of identified near Bristol. And so there's a lot of concern about that. So yes, it may be that we will require some modifications to vaccines and companies are working on that at the moment. In a hypothetical situation, would vaccinating every everybody in the world be the best sort of way forward to stopping the spread of COVID-19? That would be great if we could do that, but that would be an enormous achievement. Initially, I think it's it's right to vaccinate the highest risk individuals, so the elderly in particular, uh, but also healthcare workers and, and other high risk individuals. And I think we need to vaccinate them as fast as we can. And we need to do that across the world. But if we want to stop transmission, then we have to vaccinate other people. The elderly don't play a great role in transmission. They usually don't transmit very much. Younger adults and teenagers uh, seem to play quite an important role in transmission. And indeed, uh, all adults of, of working age, if we want to stop transmission, then we'll have to vaccinate them. Is mass vaccination the only way to end the pandemic? Will it end the pandemic? If we did that, yes, it, it would do it. Um, otherwise, the, the epidemic comes to a, will eventually come to an end on its own by immunising people through infection, which obviously is, uh, you know, um, will will result in far more cases than than immunising people through vaccination and far more cases and deaths. Some people are saying, can't we just let the virus? <laughs> Um, sort of rip through the the population, as it were. Um, but I presume this would be highly dangerous. Yeah, I mean, if we vaccinated, say, the elderly over sixty fives, which consider, you know they make up the vast majority of the severe cases and deaths. Say, if we had a vaccine that offered ninety percent protection, uh, which would be pretty good. I think we'd be very happy with that. And we vaccinated ninety percent of those. Uh, of the elderly. Again, I think we'd be very happy to achieve 90% coverage. Most countries would. So if we did that, then I think we'd be quite pleased with ourselves in some sense. But if you multiply 0.9, which is 90%, times 0.9, which is 90%, so if you've got 90% vaccine coverage and 90% vaccine efficacy, then you've protected 81%. 0.9 times 0.9 is 0.81. You will have protected 81% of the population at highest risk leaving nearly 20% unprotected. And so if you let it rip, as some people seem to like to call it, then you would very rapidly infect that 20% of the highest risk group that really haven't been protected. And also, of course, if you look, there's very high hospitalisation rates in the sort of 50 to 65-year-olds as well. And so you'd get severe uh, pressure on the health surface and a lot of severe disease in older adults that we wouldn't class as elderly. So would you say, in your opinion, the best way of sort of combating this pandemic is, you know, that mass vaccination on a large, as large a scale as possible and also retaining public health measures wherever possible? 
Yes, um, eventually we can scale the public health measures back when we've vaccinated enough people, and that's the strategy that uh, countries are, are trying to follow now. But um, you really have to scale them back when you've immunised enough. So I think you need to be careful about scaling back the public health measures too quickly, because otherwise, well, as I just outlined, you run the risk of letting cases increase again and put pressure on the health service very rapidly. And we, we talked briefly about the um, variants and you quite nicely explained how, you know, those, those can evolve, um, you know, within within a country. But are, are you more likely to get variants sort of coming in uh, to, to a country fr from another country? It depends on the incidents in the country that you're dealing with. So at the moment, you know, in the UK, we have a very high level of infection. We have now around 700,000 people are currently infectious in England at the moment in the community. It's a huge number of infections. Uh, and so uh, we have quite a high risk of generating new variants just from those cases. And then, in fact, that's exactly what's happened with these additional mutations on the backbone of the sort of Kent variant that's now been seen in Bristol and elsewhere. So it's happened already independently across the UK on a number of occasions. So we have... Because we've got high incidence here, we have a problem of generating new variants from from within, but also, you know, across the globe, there's quite high incidence. And so new variants are arising, uh, as they will. And so uh, if you want to stop those from getting a, a foothold in, in your country, then you have to keep pretty strict border restrictions in place. So the UK has passed its target to vaccinate almost 15 million of its most vulnerable. How are you feeling about this milestone? Well, that's fantastic news. Uh, it's a great achievement. It was a tough milestone to, to reach, huge numbers of vaccines to be uh, delivered, and they've done it. I mean, it's been a fantastic achievement. And would you say, you know, I guess there's still quite a long way to go. There's I mean, a huge amount before. to go. Yeah. You know, the rest of us are still susceptible to this virus, so a huge way to go. And what we've done, because we've extended the gap between dosing, so we've given one dose to um, most of those people. The vast majority have not had a second dose yet. And so we will need to be giving their second dose within within the next few weeks. And so in order to keep this level of new people getting immunised, we'll have to, from now on, or from March onwards, we'll be having to give twice as many vaccine doses every week because we'll have to start giving the second dose to those that got their first dose in January. And, um, and then we'll have to then start vaccinating new people as well. Thanks, John. And do you feel... Um hopeful about the vaccinations and that it that will help to curb COVID-19. How are you feeling about it? I mean, vaccines were always the route out. And I think it's been an amazing achievement that we've got so many vaccines developed so quickly and are now being mass produced around the world. I think that's it's been a huge achievement. And I think 2021 will be difficult just because there's still quite a long way to go. We're not safe until we're all vaccinated and there's an awful lot of us. And so it's a huge number of people that needs to be to be vaccinated. COVID will be a challenge for 
the next year or so as we roll out vaccines around the world. You know, ultimately it is the answer, as it is to, you know, most other infectious diseases as well. So a huge thank you to John and Rosalind for joining us on the podcast and giving up time in their very busy schedule to talk about vaccines. This is the part of the podcast where we will be answering your questions. So please do submit your questions to comms at lshtm.ac.uk and let us know what you're thinking about vaccines. So I actually have a question to start because I'm not a virologist. How does a vaccine actually work in our bodies? That's a really good question. And I think um, we've all had vaccines from a very early age. So it's important that we at least understand a little bit about how they work. Uh, the first thing to say is to take a little bit of a step back and look at how the how your body fights infection on its own, how it naturally will um, attack an invader. Um, your body's really, really good at noticing anything that isn't part of you. And whenever it does that, uh, it sends soldiers out to attack them and um, there's first some little scouts that go out looking to see if anything's out there whenever they find it they report back to base uh, and produce lots more scouts that will look for this very very specific invader unfortunately there's a time lag between them spotting an invader and producing enough soldiers to fight it and during that time that's whenever you get sick so that's how the immune system works without any human intervention whenever we give a vaccine what it's doing is giving um, these scouts an early warning that the invader is on its way so that there can be uh, soldiers in waiting ready to to go out there and fight it so a vaccine helps prime your natural immune response it shortens that window whenever there's no available soldiers to attack which means that there's less of that window where the virus or the bacteria can run rampant through your system taking over the the buildings uh, and the, the machinery inside it um, without the soldiers being able to kill it. So is it fair to say that it's kind of like training for a marathon before you actually run the marathon? Yeah, yeah, that, that's another really good analogy. Yeah, um, if you went out and, and just decided to run 26 miles off the bat, uh, it's it's not going to go well for you. Cool. Uh, thanks, Carl. And if our listeners have any questions, please do submit them again to us at comms at lshtm.ac.uk and we'll answer them at the end of every episode. And make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and if you can, give us a rating and even a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be really great um, for us. So thank you for those who have done that so far. And thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.